right. Hey, well, good morning once again. And would you join me in the book of Acts chapter one as we start this new sermon series? And while you're turning there to Acts chapter one, let me first just give a word um, of thanks to you. I want to say thank you uh, to you, church, and uh, those of you that contributed to the year end staff Christmas gift. So there was this kind of secret under the radar thing that uh, you all put together uh, some a gift to, to the staff. Steve, the chair of our board, went around this week and delivered those checks to the staff. And just as a special Christmas, thank you from uh, so many of you. And so I just wanted to say on behalf of the staff, uh, thank you. It really uh, meant a lot. It, you, you all were so generous. It was such, such a gift. So you guys over and over again uh, show yourself to be such a generous church in so many ways and just want you to know that it impacted me and the staff uh, personally. And we, we love getting to serve and minister here at FBC. You all are such a gracious and generous and encouraging group to be a part of. So uh, thank you. And while we're on the topic of finances, um, thank you for that. Also, not only were you generous in this, you know, staff gift at the end of the year, um, also we took a look at the uh, 2022 uh, budget and income and giving and expenses and all of that. You're going to be hearing more about this at the annual meeting, but you all were so generous throughout the year so that the giving and the income was uh, a good chunk above the the budget for the year. So that's just another thank you to you, not only for your one-time gift to the staff at the end of the year, but your consistent generosity, faithful giving to support the ministry here at FBC. So thank you. And not only that, not only was the giving above budget for the year, and did you give this special staff gift at the end of the year that we're grateful for. But also, uh, so many of you contributed gift cards to Robert Semple Elementary, where at the end of the year, we wanted to to love this local school and provide gift cards for families at that school who were in need, who needed to buy, again, food or gifts for their family or whatever at uh, the Christmas season. And so many of you uh, gave gift cards or cash to go to the school. I think our goal was 40 gift cards of $50 each. So about $2,000 we wanted to raise. And you all uh, almost doubled that. Nearly twice as much came in as was needed. So again, there's some set aside for, yeah, continued uh, giving to the school. But just, again, over and over again, you guys in so many ways have been so generous and faithful in giving. And we, of course, praise God for his consistent uh, faithfulness and generosity to us. So again, thank you. And uh, we love you. Um, With that, we are jumping into the book of Acts. This is a new sermon series, week one today, Acts, not like the body spray or the tool that you wield to chop down a tree, but Acts, A-C-T-S. We are going to be walking through this book little by little. If you were here with us uh, in, in the past you know, years, so we were working through the gospel of John. That was our last kind of big book project that we did. And it took about two years to get through with some breaks here and there. And so this is probably going to be a similar journey where we're going to, you know, for the next foreseeable future, be preaching through Acts with some, you know, seasonal breaks, depending on things that come up here and there. But for the most part, this is going to be what we're doing. So buckle up. Here, it's going to be fun. Um, we, we love preaching through books of the Bible here at FBC for a number of reasons, but I just want to share two of them with you as you get started, because I want you to know our heart on this. Um, first, preaching through books of the Bible verse by verse helps us learn how to read our Bibles. 
right? Sometimes we're um, intimidated by approaching the Bible. You know, we have all sorts of different backgrounds with the Bible and church and uh, experience with that. And so sometimes it's like, oh, where do I start? Or when you hear a sermon that's like a topical sermon or kind of jumping around to different scriptures, sometimes it's like, oh, hard to follow or you don't know. Like, could I put that all together in that way? I don't know how I'd kind of find all those strands and tie them together. But when you, when you preach through a book, just verse by verse, it's really accessible because then all of us can look at the text and, and learn, hey, here's how the flow of thought works. Here's kind of the things to look for. Here's how the ideas progress and develop. Here's the connections in the text. And so the hope is that no matter where you are in terms of experience with the Bible, a sermon series like this can really help you grow in confidence and understanding of God's word. That you can just open up the book of Acts and start to really make sense of it as we go along. So preaching this way helps us uh, learn how to read our Bibles. And the second real benefit from this is that uh, it helps us avoid the pastor's hobby horses. Right? When we preach through a book like this, we allow the text to set the agenda for what we talk about. So we, the main point of the sermon should be, and you should keep me accountable to this, should be the main point of the passage, right? That's what we want to hear is what God has to say. And so rather than like, yeah, here, Pastor Matt goes again, you know, another sermon series on sports or, you know, whatever his hobby horse is, he's going to go all over here. Now it's like, no, we're just going to talk about what the text is talking about. So we grow to understand and, and hear, okay, here's what God wants us here. And so if there's repetition and things that come up a lot, it's not because, you know, it's like Matt's hobby horse, but it's because the word of God is bringing them up over and again. We need to hear them again, that sort of thing. So it, it allows us just to let the text set the agenda. So that's part of the joy and fun of, of preaching this way, at least for me. Hope, hope that you all enjoyed as well. We'll see. Uh, let's pray though while we get, uh, get started here. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for a chance to worship as a church family. Uh, there's so much to celebrate this morning, God. We're grateful for your just faithfulness to this church, your love, your grace, your goodness, for all the blessings that we get to see, like uh, just financial stability and to partner with, with Mike and his ministry to see the ways you're at work in the world and how we get to join in that, to, um, to see now, Lord, also from your word, more about who you are and what you call us to. And thank you that you haven't left us to wonder who you are. You've shown us and told us in your word. And so help us read it with open hearts. Would you guide us by your spirit? We give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, hey, as we get started, I want you to think with me, if you would, about meaningful movements you have been a part of in your life. Right? We all as human beings have this desire to be a part of something bigger than ourselves, So think with me about maybe it's a a group you've been a part of, a community you've been a part of, an organization, some uh, sort of community activism or outreach, a movement that you've belonged to in your life. Um, For me, I remember growing up, I played youth soccer in the 90s. And I remember my dad one Saturday morning read in the paper about how youth soccer was like this growing movement. It was the fastest growing sport in popularity in the United States. And I remember thinking and feeling this pride because I was a youth soccer player. And my dad was telling me about this big movement that I was a part of. And I was like, I get to be a part of that. 
that, that soccer is taking the United States by storm and I'm, I'm one of them in the ranks uh, and so on. I remember feeling the same thing with water polo. Back in high school, I played water polo and it was kind of this like growing thing in popularity, at least in the Sacramento area. And so I was a part of that movement and an evangelist for water polo, you could say. And I grew my hair out and I wore a Speedo and I did the whole thing. And I'm sorry if that makes you uncomfortable, but it's just, it's, it's, it happened. And so for me, uh, that was something I was a part of that I enjoyed. Maybe you feel this way, again, about, about community activism, some cause that is close to your heart. Uh, it's maybe foster care. Maybe it's um, you're passionate about education. You're a teacher or in the school system, and you really feel like a representative of that movement. Maybe it's, it's pickleball or, I don't know, some hobby. Maybe it's, it's, it could be a career, um, something that's impacting the world and the future trajectory of, of our world, and you're, you're glad to be part of it. Maybe not a lot's coming to mind for you, or you're having trouble picking, figuring out exactly what that would be in your life. Uh, but if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, I have good news for you this morning, uh, exciting news, and that is that as a follower of Jesus, you are part of the most diverse, global, multicultural, multi-ethnic movement in the history of the world. The church of Jesus Christ is without a doubt, hands down, the most influential, transformative, life and culture changing movement in all of history. And through faith in Jesus, you are a part of that movement. As we read the book of Acts, it's the story of the birth of this movement. It's the story of the birth of the church and that the church is not a place you go or a building that you attend. It's a people that you belong to. It's a movement of God in the world that through faith in Jesus, you are a part of. And so it's important to know the story that you're a part of. It's important to know where we fit in to the story on the screen, I want you to see, uh, this is a table of contents for the New Testament, and I want you to see where the book of Acts falls. Hopefully your New Testament table of contents looks like this, and you don't have some strange one, but this is a New Testament table of contents, and I want you to see where the book of Acts is. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four gospels, right? The, the primary accounts of the life of Jesus that tell of his his birth, his life, ministry, teachings, death, resurrection, and so on. And then we have uh, the rest of the New Testament are primarily epistles or letters written in the first century by Paul or Peter or John to various churches, the church in Corinth, the church in Rome, the church in Ephesus, and so on. Those are the, the rest of the New Testament. So Acts uh, is right in between those uh, chunks, you could say, and is this unique book. Yet it's not, it's not a gospel, but it's not an epistle, like a letter written to one specific church in one specific place. The book of Acts is kind of this hinge book that is this bridge between uh, the ministry of Jesus and then the, the life of the established church in the decades to come in the first century. Acts is a, it's a history really of the growth of the church, the birth of the church, the expansion of the church, how the Holy Spirit comes and empowers the apostles to go and share the gospel in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So Acts is that story. 
So it's really fun. It's a really exciting uh, book to read and to see. It's really unique and it's just going to be a really fun ride. I want you uh, to see how the book starts here. Acts chapter one, verse one. We're going to jump in. Look at what it says. It says, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles, he had chosen. So notice in verse one that the book of Acts begins with a reference to another book. You know, it's that in my former book, verse one says, and the author of Acts is addressing someone named Theophilus. Cool name, right? Anyone here named Theophilus? No? Okay. But it was a common name back then. And so as we're getting started, he's saying, hey, I want you to remember, Theophilus, this other book that I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. So immediate questions come up, right? First, okay, who is this Theophilus fellow? And who's writing the book of Acts? And what is this former book that he's talking about? Um, most think that Theophilus was this, this, this patron or really a sponsor of the work. Could have been a wealthy uh, individual, influential individual in the ancient world who could finance a writing project like this. So perhaps he hired Luke to go and, and, and research and study and figure out what happened about Jesus and produce this orderly account. It's also possible that, that Luke did this primarily on his own, but then addressed it to uh, Theophilus as someone who could distribute it. It was kind of written in his, in his honor so that he would kind of share its influence. We don't know exactly, but Theophilus was a, a real person in the ancient world, his name meant a lover of God or one who is loved by God. And that's who Luke is writing to. Although uh, clearly the, again, extent of the work would not be for this one individual alone, but would be for really a much larger audience. In terms of who wrote the book, the unanimous agreement uh, throughout the history of the church has been that Acts is written by Luke. Uh, the, the book itself doesn't address that. It doesn't say, hey, I'm Luke and I'm writing this. But again, unanimous church history says, yeah, Luke is the author. He was a physician, a Gentile. He traveled with the apostle Paul. We'll see later in the book of Acts uh, some things that he was present for, things that he personally uh, witnessed and was a part of. And Luke, as you probably guessed it, was the author of the book of Luke. Right, the gospel of Luke. And so... Luke and Acts, Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts is seen as a two-part work, Luke-Acts. Um, it's one book, one unified project, but in two kind of distinct volumes. And here's how we know this. Um, look back with me at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. Okay, Luke 1, we're going to have it on the screen. Luke 1, verse 1. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Notice the connection, right? Luke 1 verse 3, hey, I'm writing this account for you, Theophilus, 
Same guy that was addressed in Acts chapter one, verse one. So it's not hard to see that. Hey, okay, these are the two books that go together, both addressed to Theophilus, Luke and Acts. Now, the other thing I want you to notice, it's really important here as we get started, is the type of book that we have in front of us. The type of book we're about to read. Luke writes, as we just read in verse two of chapter one, He speaks of eyewitnesses to all these events surrounding Jesus. He talks about in verse two of Luke one, a tradition or teachings that were handed down. See, in the ancient world, uh, students of a a rabbi, disciples of a rabbi uh, would see it as one of their primary responsibilities, uh, uh, collecting the sayings or teachings or traditions of their rabbi and accurately preserving them and, and passing them down. It was vitally important. And so Luke is saying, hey, I, I talked to some eyewitnesses and we looked at this tradition that was handed down and preserved accurately about Jesus. And verse three of Luke one, you remember him saying this, he says, he carefully investigated everything from the beginning. In other words, he's saying, hey, I'm not just going around casually uh, being gullible and believing everything that I hear that's in circulation. No, I carefully investigated all these claims about Jesus, and I wanted to write, he says, an orderly account for you, Theophilus. And so when we read the Gospel of Luke, or the book of Acts here, like we're about to do, we have the author telling us, hey, I want you to know, that I spent a considerable amount of time researching these events. And with great detail, I listened to the eyewitnesses and I recorded what I heard and I recorded these events. I wanted to get to the bottom of what actually happened and I'm now presenting it for you here. So do you see the implications of that? We are dealing with a book of history, not a book of fantasy, or legend, or fiction. And that's really important for us to hear and see because let's be honest, today it's common for us in our modern world to wonder about the Bible. Can we trust it? Is it true? Is it fiction? Is it myth? Is it once upon a time sort of stuff that we're not sure if any of it actually happened, but sure, some cute stories are in there. I remember back in high school, friends of mine joking about going into the bookstore and taking the Bible and going to put it in the fiction section and then laugh about it because that's where it belongs. <laughs> and I didn't know what, what to say to that back then. I didn't know what to make of that. I, in my own mind, I had questions or doubts or, or wonders. Yeah, is it really true? Maybe you can relate. Not maybe in, in, in a critical sense, but just in an in a honest wondering and asking about the reliability of the New Testament. Is it really true? And maybe I want it to be true in my heart, but I'm having trouble wrapping my head around it, right? Or I want to be convinced in my mind so that of course it comes more naturally in my heart. Because if we're basing our life on the person of Jesus, and and one of the primary Uh, means that we have of knowing about the person of Jesus and who he was and what he said is this book, then we want to know that this book is reliable and trustworthy and true. 
And no doubt in this book, we read about some events that are jarring and mysterious and abnormal and miraculous. And frankly, sometimes hard for us to wrap our heads around. But just to start this morning, as we start this journey, I want you to see that they are presented not as myth, not as squishy fiction, uh, but as true events, as accurate history. And a life of faith in following Jesus is not opposed to the life of the mind and serious study and research and scholarly work and, and looking at history. If this is true, which it is, it can stand up to our investigation and our questions and our doubts and our research. It has to. Or else we can all just go home and start sleeping in on Sundays. So Luke, the author, approaches the writing of Luke and Acts, carefully researched, recording an orderly account, because he cares about history and real events, and we should too. Look with me at, uh, back to the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 3. Look at the similar ideas there. Speaking of Jesus, he says, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. So Jesus suffers, he dies, and then it says what? He presented himself as alive, risen to his followers and gave, it says, many convincing proofs. He appeared to them convincingly that he was alive over a period of, of 40 days. And so in other words, we don't just have like a dude in a basement who ate a bad sushi roll one night and woke up the next day and said, I saw Jesus, trust me. And that's what these stories are based on. Think about the resurrection appearances for 40 days, it tells us. Think about the number of them. We read as we went through the gospel of John, some of them. He appears to the women at the tomb. He appears to the 11 disciples gathered later. He appears to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. Remember the last breakfast in Galilee on the beach in John 21, when we were preaching through John? He reinstates Peter. Remember, uh, there's one appearance that the epistles speak of where he appeared to hundreds of disciples at the same time. Hundreds at, at once. And so he's not just saying, and the point is that with the resurrection of Jesus, it wasn't just like, hey, I'm back, and then phew, off to heaven. Um, there's this, this period Acts is telling us about of 40 days where he has multiple appearances to disciples showing himself to be alive. And so it's not just some you know, story some guy cooked up in a basement somewhere. It's, it's real verifiable. Hey, eyewitnesses, many people saw this and it could be fact-checked, right? It could be, hey, go talk to these eyewitnesses. There are people living around when this was being written in the, in the 60s or 70s, depending on who you ask, uh, who could say, yeah, either this happened, I was there, or no, this, I was there and that didn't happen at all. They could, you know, verify. So we're dealing with the claims of objective truth. This is the, the testimony of the apostles and the early church. I just want you to see that the, the apostles and the early church did not go to their death and face persecution and rejection for some cute story they made up. Right? The invitation for us isn't to live and die for a, a myth that may or may not be true and, you know, makes us 
feel good. No, the invitation is to live and die for a real God, a real Jesus who really lived and really died and really rose and really reigns now on his throne and really is coming back again. It's, it's a real Jesus that we follow because it's only a real Jesus that can, can meet us and make us alive and sustain us in our dark night of the soul when we're broken and discouraged and need someone to carry us. Not just some fancy idea or feel good thought can do that. But the real Jesus can We also have to be careful about this too, because in our day, in our postmodern world, often feelings are elevated over truth. We want to know, do we like it? (laughs) Does it feel good? Not necessarily whether it's true or right. And that sort of thinking sometimes has infected the church where we make discipleship about our own preferences and, you know, what what we like or don't like, uh, rather than just asking, well, is it true? Is this what Jesus said? Whether we like it or not, if he said it, then we should obey it. Yeah, and so it's not just about a whim and, and a myth. This is something that can hold its weight. It's compellingly rational and objectively true. Uh, the truth of the gospel is something that can captivate the sharpest mind and the brightest scholars and also is accessible to the simplest child. And so we can hold out this message of truth to the world. Something that I do think is attractive. And even if we bury that desire for truth, we all have in our hearts a desire uh, to know what is true. Aristotle, the philosopher said, all men by nature desire to know. Or we have this desire to know what is true, to walk in the truth, to be aligned with reality. Uh, C.S. Lewis said, one of the things that distinguishes man from animals is that he wants to know things, wants to find out what reality is like. That's part of this universal human desire to know what is true and and, and walk in it. Um, If you're a parent or a grandparent or have been around little kids, you you know this, right? That you see kids, they look out at the world with, with awe and wonder and they're filled with what? Questions about why, and then why again, and why again, and they want to know how this works, and to make sense of this, and understand the world around them, right? There's this this natural uh, desire that wells up within us to know and understand, and so I just want you to see that that with uh, Christianity, with the Bible, and with with the book of Acts, we have these these claims of of real historical facts, and, and truth, and events that actually happen. So with that, look back with me at Acts chapter one. See again how it starts. There's more here. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them, gave many convincing proofs that he was alive and he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. What we see here in these opening verses, really, it's a summary of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The summary of the message of the gospel. Verse 1, the foundation then for what is to come, he's saying, is what? All that Jesus began to do and teach. Verse 3, he suffered and died, 
but he then showed himself alive to his apostles. And then he spoke about the kingdom and he sent them out. And so I want you to see the simple truth that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is the foundation for all that is to follow. The, the birth of the church and the ministry of the apostles the apostles and the rest of the New Testament and, and God's continued mission in the world that we are a part of today. The center of all of it, the foundation for all of it is the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. I say, hey, as we get started, I don't want you to forget that. This is all about Jesus and what he has done. It's this, this shared life with Jesus that, that makes us who we are as a church, Right? So the, the Greek word for church is ekklesia. Uh, it means the, the church, you could translate that way, or the gathering or an assembly. And it's actually formed by two Greek words. One is ek, which is a prefix, which means uh, from or out of. And second is kaleo, which is to call or, or summon or even name. And so the church is the, the called out ones, those who are called out from something and around some new idea or identity or reality, or in this case, person, right? We are called out of the world to know Jesus, to walk with God, to have this new identity as the people of God. And it's all centered and unified around Jesus. But we're not bound together. We're not called out of the world to be this new um, you know, political affiliation or because of our social status, we're bound together or our national citizenship or our ethnicity or whatever other you know, thing that might uh, bind us together. No, we're bound together by this shared commitment to Jesus, all that he began to do and teach, his ministry, his death and resurrection. That's what it is that makes us the church. We are a people who worship Jesus as savior and bow before him as Lord and seek to obey him and be about his kingdom and his work in the world. And it's a really beautiful picture, right? That, that we, as the church, were called out of the world and we're all really different, Right? There's this diversity within the church that we come together from different backgrounds and ethnicities and nationalities and languages and whatever. And we come together, social status, rich and poor, young and old, coming together as one people. There's nothing like it in the world. Amber and I talk about this regularly, how, how sweet it is to be a part of a church family. The joy that it brings to our lives, getting to share life with, with all of you. We think about how in our church family, we don't just have our cute little cohort of peers and you know, we're just young families all navigating life together. No, the, the church is much deeper and richer than that. We, through the church, get to be in relationship with people who are younger than us, right? Kids and students and young adults. And we usually still like in our mind, picture ourselves in our early twenties. So we're usually like, oh, we're some of the youngest people around, but now we're like in our mid thirties. And so we can't really classify ourselves as young adults anymore, you know? Um, but so there are people younger than us that now that we get to enjoy life with. And there are people who are further along in life uh, that are uh, retired or have grown children or our grandparents who have so much uh, life wisdom and love to share. And we get to walk through life with them 
and enjoy them and go to the men's breakfast with young and old together and at our women's event. Well, ladies, you get to sit with young and old together and enjoy being one church family, even with such diverse backgrounds. Young and old and everywhere in between, people who think different, who joke different, <laughs> who, who operate different th- than we do, and yet we share this love for Jesus. And we have this new life in Jesus. And it makes us family. I tell you, our life is so much richer because of these relationships that we enjoy. And I hope that you'd be able to say the same. As you lean in to life and community here at FBC, that you would experience the same, same thing. So Acts starts by reminding us that it's the life, death, resurrection of Jesus that is the center of all of this. And so if you're here visiting today or you're relatively new today or trying out this church thing today, what a great, what a great time to be here. We were so glad you're here, but especially now get to, to, to hear the heart of what this whole gathering and thing is all about. Not just some sort of social club or people who get together to, I don't know, pat each other on the back or whatever. We're here to worship Jesus and be about his work in the world. In a short summary of the message, uh, we find in in Romans chapter three, if I could read it for us, Romans three tells us what uh, the heart of this is all about. Paul writes, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. That's, that's the heart of what we're about here, right? That we all acknowledge we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And because of our sin, we've, we've separated ourselves from God and we fall into the judgment of God. Uh, and yet God in his love and in his mercy sent his son, Jesus, and presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. And through the shedding of his blood, we could be forgiven and washed and cleansed and justified, verse 24 said. Justified, meaning we've been declared righteous before God. Presented as righteous, holy, cleansed, not by our works, but because the righteousness of Christ is given to us. It says we're justified freely, giftily, really, it says, by grace. It's a gift to be received by faith. We don't work for it, right? We don't earn this new standing with God. We don't work our way into the kingdom and perform so that we can be a child of God. No, we simply receive the gift of God's grace and love and redemption through the work of Jesus on our behalf. Look with me one more time at Acts chapter one, verse one. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. There's there's something more here for us to see. We just talked about the summary that follows. All that Jesus began to do and teach, his suffering, his death, his resurrection, his uh, appearances, his ascension back to heaven, uh, his commands to his disciples about the kingdom of God and sending them out by the spirit. But there's something going on in this verse that would be easy for us to miss or for us just to kind of read over quickly I want you to look with me again. He says, I wrote about all that Jesus, and then keyword, began to do and teach. 
all that Jesus began to do and teach. Most think Luke's use of the word began here is intentional. And there's this connection that the gospel of Luke was about all that Jesus began to do. And now the book of Acts is about all that Jesus continues to do, right? He began to do all this. We saw that in the gospel of Luke. And now Jesus continues to do all of this work through his people and by his spirit. In other words, the story of the church is the story of Jesus' continued ministry, continued power, continued impact and redemption in his world. The book of Acts, um, it's, it's an abbreviation. It's a longer title. Okay, historically, traditionally, Acts uh, was titled the Acts of the Apostles. Your Bible might still say that. The Acts of the Apostles. Uh, because it details the growth of the church and all of the apostles, these first followers of Jesus did and how the gospel moved out. But many have kind of rethought that and maybe suggested based on in part by verse one uh, and other thoughts throughout the book that really maybe we should call it the Acts of Jesus and the Spirit rather than the Acts of the Apostles, uh, because it's about how Jesus is still at work. The entire book is about how Jesus is building his church and transforming his world and redeeming his world through his people and by his spirit. So yeah, it's about the apostles and what they do, uh, but really it's about what Jesus is continuing to do in the world. Look again in verse two, until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles, he had chosen. And here's the key. Before his ascension, Jesus showed himself to his apostles, gave them instructions through the Holy Spirit, it says. And the key is that Jesus continues his work in the world through his people. And now it talks about his apostles here in verse two. The Greek word is apostolos, which simply means uh, sent ones. That's what an apostle is. One who is sent ones who were with Jesus, commissioned, and then sent out in his name to be about his work in the world. Now, those those first apostles who, you know, the 12 who walked with Jesus and saw Jesus and heard him with their own ears, they played a unique role in the story, no doubt. And we don't use the title or label uh, apostle today. But as followers of Jesus, there's overlap in the sense that we similarly are sent out right? There's this sentness about the church. We're sent out into the world on mission in our, in our families, in our communities, where, where we work with the message of the gospel. We're sent with the love of God to a dying world. Uh, we're sent out to, to make disciples. We're sent out to, to love our neighbors in the name of Jesus. And so we, we spent months as a church in the fall looking at the series, Love Your Church. Who are we as a church? What does it mean to belong to the church? What does it mean to be a member of a church? And now the, the natural next step and next question is, well, like, what as the church should we be about? Like, what's, what's next? It's not just, hey, we come and hang out and enjoy one another, but what has God sent us out in the world to do? And so we see that unfold in the book of Acts, but God wants us in short to live on mission, to live sent, to go out with the love of Jesus and the call to make disciples. Uh, Emil Bruner uh, famously has said, a church exists by mission as fire exists by burning. Again, a church exists by mission 
as fire exists by burning. In other words, there's, there's no way to be the church unless we are on mission with God about his work and business in the world. Either we're a church on mission, sent out uh, in action with the love of God, or we are not a church. So this morning, would you have the, the audacity to believe with me that God is still at work in his world? That this story of the church is still being written today. All that Jesus is continuing to do through his people, the church, and by his spirit. And would you believe with me that, that he wants to use you? Right? That he would fill you with his spirit and send you out into his world to be about his kingdom. That he invites you today, not only to know him and love him and enjoy him uh, and be encouraged by him and wrapped up in his arms and welcomed into his family. Not only that, but also then commissioned and filled and sent out to be about his work in the world. The good work he set out in advance for you to walk in. Came across this great quote, Pastor Rich Velotis was quoting an expert in church history and the church historian said this, in the first two centuries of the church, it was not Christian worship that attracted outsiders. It was Christians who attracted them. Let's say that again. In the first two centuries of the church, it was not Christian worship that attracted outsiders. It was Christians who attracted them. And outsiders found the Christians attractive because of their Christian formation. In other words, the explosive growth of the church in the first century that we read about in Acts, and I would argue the growth of the church and impact of the church moving forward in the decades to come in our country is not going to be about programming. It's not going to be about exciting worship services and lights and good music and dynamic preaching and special services, right? The quote, uh, the growth of the church People were attracted not to the worship of the church or the service of the church or what we do in here, but they were attracted, compelled, uh, drawn in by the people of the church, by Christians, by our lives being on display for a watching world and them seeing something different in us. It was ordinary Christians living transformed lives and the watching world would see how Jesus radically changed their hearts and radically formed and shaped these people and radically changed and altered these families and these communities. And they made this church into a people marked by love and grace and hospitality. It was something unlike the world had ever seen. And God is still doing this today. And he wants to continue to do this through you and your life and our life together as a church. As we close in prayer, I want to invite you to respond and do something a little different because I want to scare you and keep you on your toes. But it's, it's a simple way to respond. First, I want to invite, if all of us, could, could you stand as, we're, as we close? We're about to sing a closing song. But I want to invite you just to stand where you are. And then I'm going to pray for us. And I want to invite you, if, if this is the posture of your heart, to in a moment, just join me by opening up your hands in prayer. 
Uh, often what we do with our bodies is, is important. Sometimes we neglect that and we just sit here and in the quietness of my heart, I'm gonna think about things. But really how we respond physically, it's we're embodied people, right? And so what we do with our bodies matters. And so uh, this is a prayer posture where we open up our hands before the Lord simply to say, Lord, I am open and receptive to what you want to do in my life. Lord, I come with open hands to say, would you fill me? Would you use me? Would you uh, send me out in your name? Would you help my life to be about all that you want it to be? I come with open hands. And so if that's the posture of your heart, I invite you just to open your hands up as I close us in prayer. Lord Jesus, we come before you. We are your church. We are your people. We belong to you. And so we, we come with, with empty hands. And this reminds us first that, that as we come to you, we don't bring our performance or our good works. We truly come uh, as we are with nothing to offer. And yet we know that uh, because of your grace, we've received your love and your favor and your kindness and we belong to you. And also, Lord, our open hands remind us that we come and want to offer ourselves fully to you not with clenched fists, holding on to our lives and and our time and our money, but we want to open everything we are to you, Lord, and ask that you would fill us by your spirit and ask that you would use us for your glory. And we ask that in in the weeks and months ahead, as we walk through the book of Acts, you would refresh us and encourage us and remind us who we are and what you call us to. Would you direct our lives, Lord? We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.